Well, happy Father's Day. Thank you. We have a special award for Father's Day today. Uh, this award is for this year's most adventurous father. This is a sanity optional award. And this year's sanity optional award for most adventurous father goes to Matthew Manch. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, he has help uh, in this award. Um, many of you know that, that this Sunday is, uh, for now, uh, Matthew and Julie and their families, last Sunday with us at Grace. They are going on an adventure. It fully qualifies for that title. Uh, they are traveling first the Western United States and then, Lord willing, the rest of the world. Uh, for the next year, taking their family with them, homeschooling the kids, uh, seeing the world, and just uh, with the Lord's help, receiving just a broader exposure to what the Lord is doing in the world. Uh, really, really cool idea. <laughs> um, I'm glad you guys are the one that are taking that idea and making it into reality. And we, we look forward to hearing uh, what the Lord does through your family. I want to pray for you uh, now. Father, uh, we thank you for the many, many ways that you have blessed our church through the Manch family. And we thank you for this really unique opportunity that you have set before them um, to see so much of the country, to see so much of the world. And I pray that as is their desire, that this would be a really fruitful time for them, for the relationships in their family, uh, for the development of each one of their kids. Uh, we pray that this would be a chance for them to see what you are doing in the world. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you keep them safe. Pray that you'd provide for their needs. Uh, we pray that this would be a wonderful time of their family uh, growing together in you. Uh, Father, we, we lift up Matthew and Julie as they lead their family through this. Uh, we, lift up, uh, we lift up Caleb and Leah and Ansley and Ella, we pray that, that they would just be able to enjoy their time together and, and that this would prove to be a rich time of learning about you and your work in the world. We just entrust them to you for this year. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the word of man, ideas of man, human ideas, Ideas that human beings come up as, as bearers of the image of God can be helpful. Uh, they, they can do some good. They can improve people's lives. And I've experienced pieces of that through different kinds of books. Uh, somet sometimes these books have been called self-help books. I think that term is sort of out of popularity. Maybe it's more self-improvement. Uh, sort of the 21st century term is life hacking. Uh, that sounds more cool. And, and these, these books can be helpful at times. And yet, and yet their inability to provide the kind of ongoing transformation, sustained change that we long for, their inability to provide that is proven by their own life cycle. Because for almost every single one of these books, for which there is a huge market, where do these books end their life? Well, on the clearance rack to make room for new ones. Self-help books end up on a shelf that's labeled help yourself, ironically. That's because 
no level of self-improvement is able to change you. And that's because no level of self-improvement is able to bring you into a relationship with the living God. That's the kind of change that we most fundamentally need. Our fundamental problem is personal. Our fundamental problem is relational. And so the letter, the first letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians is both personal and relational, deeply. Uh, he's separated from them and he's bothered by that. And he knows that they might be bothered by that as well. He's even concerned perhaps about how they might be interpreting their separation. Here, Paul showed up. He had this message for us. And now we're kind of left to ourselves in this really difficult place, humanly speaking. And so what do we make of that? Have we been abandoned by Paul? And he wants to help them with the way they interpret his absence. And so that's part of what he's doing as he writes. As he writes, uh, he spends a long time doing personal reflection on his relationship with the Thessalonians. This is partly to help them interpret his absence, to show, look, you guys deeply matter to us, even while we can't be with you in person. And so chapter one, he, he kind of summarizes uh, what it was like for them to bring the gospel and what it was like for the Thessalonians to receive it. And then he even comes back to that in chapter two. And last week we saw how he expanded on what it meant for Paul and his co-workers to bring the gospel. And this morning he expands on what it meant for the Thessalonians to receive it. Because the way he was among them with the gospel and the way they responded to the gospel, both give the Thessalonians ongoing reason for confidence in the gospel. Look at what the gospel does through us in you when God brings it to you. So we see Paul doing ongoing personal reflecting in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 through 16. Before we go any further, I just want to read our text. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out <clears throat> and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. God's wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, in summary, to the Thessalonians, we thank God that he is at work in you by his word. This is the word that we got to bring to you. And it's God's word. You received it not as a word of men, but as the word of God. And as a result, God is at work in you through his word. And we're really thankful when we hear about that. Paul describes how you received the word in verse 13. And then he describes how you showed that you received the word in verses 
14 through 16. And he starts where it's appropriate to start. We thank God that this happened. And this is more than manners. Thanking God is not just politeness. It's more than giving credit where credit is due. When Paul thanks God that they received the word of God, there's confidence for the Thessalonians because it shows that it, that it, it wasn't just a good sales job on Paul's part to bring this message to them. The reason that they received the word of God as the word of God was because through that word, God was calling them to himself. So even the Thessalonians can look back on that and say, when, when this message was brought to us, it was because God wanted us to come to him. He'd made a way for it through the death of his son. And then through sending this message to us and through arranging in some really unique ways to get it there, God said, come to me. Be reconciled to me. I've made a way for you to do it. Through the gospel we communicated, you sensed God calling to you. And you responded. And we thank him that you did. And now, that message that they responded to continues to work in them. The message about what Jesus did in the past and what he's going to do in the future is doing things now. It, it never hits the clearance rack. Paul says, even though we, the human messengers, are gone, we're not there anymore, something's still stirring, something's still working. The word of God is at work in you, believers. Hearing and believing the gospel is not something we simply do at one time and then kind of check that box. Yes, I've heard the gospel. I believe the gospel. That's done. Now I'm in. And now I live by kind of a new set of ethical standards and some basic obligations. So I got in and now I have some basic rules that I need to obey. It's not the way the Christian life works. The word of God continued to be at work in the Thessalonians especially the word of God about what he had done in Jesus Christ. It was happening in them. They were continuing to be changed, not simply by being told to change, but by being told the good news about Jesus, the past good news and the future good news. And so it was doing things like 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing. You're learning. You're, lear you're learning to love your brothers. And as Paul goes on to describe what this actually looks like, it's, it's really, really on the ground, kind of dirty hands, kind of pure love for one another that happens in the form of daily work, the kind of work that's driven by love that, that, that results in a transformed life, a life that instead of using one another, learns to love one another. And it's not mainly simply by saying, them, saying to them, hey, uh, get to work. It's by telling them you have a brand new way of seeing your work. When Jesus redeemed you, he redeemed all of you. He redeemed your whole life, including the daily sort of drudgery kind of work that you do. 
You're no longer working simply to survive. You're no longer working simply to be comfortable. Your goal in your work is not to survive it as long as you can and be successful as you can and to escape it as soon as possible. Your, your goal in your work has been redeemed by the fact that your future has been redeemed by Jesus. And so now you stand in a brand new place to work out of love for one another. Their transformed approach to work is just one example. Paul will expand on that when we get to it in chapter 4. It's one example of what it looked like for the word, the good news about Jesus, the good news about the past and about their future, what it looked like for that word to be at work in them, changing them in an ongoing way. But before he gets there to those specifics, Paul starts with the big picture, what it looked like for the word to be at work among them. And we see that in verses 14 through 16. Here's the basic idea. You remained faithful to Christ through suffering. You remained faithful to Christ through opposition. Verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. That's an interesting comparison. There were lots of different churches, of course. There were churches of Christ that had actually come, come to him very recently. There was a church in Philippi. There were churches over in Asia Minor that were closer to the Thessalonians. And yet Paul chooses to make this comparison between this new church in Thessalonica and the churches in Judea. Why does he do that? What's, what's his point? Well, we get some of that in the second part of verse 14. For you suffered the same things. Suffering for your confession that Jesus is the resurrected Christ has been the pattern from the beginning. As Jesus said it would be. So when the word of Christ is preached, the good news about Jesus and what it means for rebellious human beings, when that good news is preached, there's a pattern of opposition by unbelievers, and there's a pattern of patient perseverance by believers. And that's been going on from the beginning. And it had better be worth it. Because when you choose to confess Jesus, and when you keep confessing Jesus, what happens, what happened to the churches in Judea, what happened to the Thessalonians was that they were forced to give up other sources of security, other sources of belonging. This suffering, this opposition came at the hands of the people that you would expect to feel most at home with, most accepted by your own people. This is what happened to the churches in Judea. It's what's happening, Paul says, to you. You're suffering at the hands of your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And when you did that, and when they did that, you actually found a better source of security and a better source of belonging, a more lasting one. There's a pattern among believers in Jesus and Thessalonians, Paul says, you're a part of it. And it shows, it's one way of showing that the gospel is reliable. We have these stories of the churches in Judea. Uh, many of them happened about, about 15 years before uh, these things were written to the Thessalonians. 
And they look remarkably similar to what has happened in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, we, we will probably return to Acts 17, 1 through 9, uh, more than once, because this is where the story is told. This is the background to First and Second Thessalonians. The gospel comes to, to Thessalonica. People believe it. And here's what happens. Acts 17, 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, these are probably Gentiles, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Paul says this is very much like what happened to the very first believers, to the very first Christians, even before they were called Christians, uh, in, in Judea, near Jerusalem. Look at Acts 4. Just look at a couple of these stories briefly. Acts 4, verses 1 through 3, Peter and John have, have uh, by the Lord's power, healed a man who couldn't walk. And so people were amazed, and they've, they've said that they've done this in the name of Jesus. And so the name of Jesus is being preached. And then Acts 4, starting in verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Then they go through this trial and they, they tell them, hey, you can't, you can't teach about this Jesus. And this is when Peter and John say, we have to obey God rather than men. Um, this is not something that you have authority to tell us not to do. And so they... The, the leaders find they, they can't really do anything about it. So finally, in this case, they let them go. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Then it upgrades. They continue preaching because God has told them to continue preaching Jesus as the Christ and the resurrection from the dead. So then next story, Acts 5, 17 through 18. Uh, they have come and they're preaching again, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and here it is again, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. They are miraculously released from prison. They come out. What do they do? They keep preaching Jesus as the Christ. They keep doing it and they continue to be opposed. This Seems like it would be a, a losing battle on, on behalf of those who don't believe, but they keep at it and they keep telling them, don't preach. And then verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And here's the pattern that the Thessalonians continue to follow. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Of course, Paul himself is personally familiar with this opposition, this jealous opposition to this message about Jesus. We see that in Acts 8, Stephen is killed for preaching Christ, and Saul approved of his ex execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Then verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now he writes to the Thessalonians and he says, you have good reason to be confident in this message about Jesus because you are part of a consistent pattern. Jesus said that this message would be opposed. It has been opposed. Those who are opposed have persevered and the word of God has continued to bear fruit against all this opposition. And here you are and you show up and you believe and people are jealous and they stir up the mob against the message and you have persevered. You stand in the same pattern as those who believed first. And as a result, you show that you truly believe. It says you, you show that, that you believe by persevering in opposition to the gospel. Persevering in opposition to you because you believed the gospel. It's worth us stopping there for a minute and and, and, and reflecting on how we respond when people oppose the gospel and on how people respond to us when we believe the gospel and when we obey the gospel, including when we make lifestyle choices that are in keeping with the gospel. It, it's really easy for us as Americans to, to make our first priority our own rights. It's, it's sort of part of the American gospel, isn't it? That we, that, that we have inalienable rights from God. Now, there is a certain real truth to that, that there, there is such a thing as justice. There is such a thing as human rights. It's good to stand up for the justice behind those rights on our behalf and on behalf of others. But it's not our hope. It's, it's not the news about our future that transforms us today. There is better news. There is more reliable news. There are inalienable rights and there are irrevocable promises. And that's what we hold on to. And, and so we, we don't suffer today, for the most part, in the same way that the Thessalonians were suffering. There's been a broad answer to a prayer that's reflected in, in first Timothy two, where Paul says, I want, I want people to pray men in particular. I want them to pray for leaders and for everyone in positions of authority so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And you know what? We live in a, we live in a nation and in, in some ways this is reflected in many parts of the world as well where in so many ways that prayer has been answered. I have the privilege of living, if I will take it up, of living a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, without my government coming to me and saying, you can't do that. That's a huge privilege. It's not guaranteed that it will continue. We want to continue to pray for that. And if the time comes, and it could come very quickly, we want to be ready to say our hope is not ultimately found in the protection of our rights, as legitimate as they are, as bearers of God's image. Our hope is found 
in the promises of the gospel, what Jesus has done and what Jesus is going to do. If you're waiting for his son from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, if you're waiting for his son from heaven, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, then the threat to your rights temporarily gets shrunk to its proper size. That's how the word of God was at work in the Thessalonians. Expecting Jesus was causing them to persevere as Christians and to hold on to their confession that Jesus was the Christ in the face of suffering. Again, not mainly by telling them, hey, you ought to persevere. That's there. But mainly by telling them their future. By making specific promises to them about what was going to happen, which is what Paul does here. And here's the promise. The big promise is Jesus is coming back. One part of that promise is that God is going to deal with those who oppose you. The Thessalonians in the moment need to know this. It can only be true if Jesus comes back. And when Jesus does come back, it will be true. God will deal with them. He says, there are those who oppose you because you believe in Jesus. God takes that seriously. And so, verses 15 through 16, those who oppose you will suffer. You're suffering now. Those who oppose you will suffer. Those who oppose the churches in Judea killed the Lord Jesus, verse 15. They did it in cooperation with the Gentiles, and this keeps happening. There are those who have had the word of God for a long time, and those who have had the word and don't believe cooperate with those who have just heard the word and don't believe, and they oppose this message about Jesus. You see that, you see that in Acts. Uh, you see it here in the Thessalonians. And so Paul says, you're not alone. You're not isolated in your suffering. This has been going on. The Gentiles who cooperate in the opposition, the Gentiles in each of these situations are obviously sinners. They're outsiders. They're not saved. And when Paul comes to them with the message that they can be saved, the consistent pattern is jealousy on the part of the Jewish community that doesn't believe. Jealousy, it shows up over and over again. And their jealousy results in a pattern, Paul says, of hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Verse 16. As a result, he says, those who hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved always fill up the measure of their sins. This opposition holds a place of special severity, special seriousness in God's sight. There have been those, there have been groups of people throughout history who, that, that, where, where God has said of a group of people, <clears throat> they haven't gone as far as they might. He said things like he said all the way back in Genesis 15, 6, to Abraham that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
There's a sinful group of people in the place where you live. I'm going to deal with them. I'm actually going to deal with them through your descendants, but their iniquity is not yet complete. They haven't gone as far as they might. We will someday and I'll deal with them. But what's happening to the Thessalonians is a kind of sin that is especially severe. Now, this is a sin that is carried out, uh, that, that, that started the, the, the initiative, comes from the jealousy of the unbelieving Jewish people. Now, Paul, if you read Paul, you know, and I just want to be clear here, Paul is not being anti-Jewish. He's not being anti-Semitic. He's, he's being anti-unbelief. He's being anti-opposition. That's what this is all about. And so he calls out and warns against unbelief wherever it's found. These are those, he says, who drove us out and displeased God. And here's the problem with the unbelief. Here's the problem with the opposition. They oppose all mankind. If anyone is left especially without excuse for their sin. It's those who have both had God's word in the past, and it's especially those who oppose God's message of reconciliation. We, we see this pattern in, in Romans 1 and 2. All sinners, Romans 1.20, all sinners are without excuse. That's made clear. Uh, all people are given a conscience by God tells them basically what's right and wrong, and they know because of their conscience that they don't live up to it. They're, they're shown by what they see in nature that there must be a God who made us, there must be a God that we answer to, and they refuse to answer to him. So all people are without excuse. And then in Romans 2, verse 1, we see that in an elevated way, those who have the written law, God's clearest instruction, have no excuse. And why is that? Why is it that God particularly opposes? Why is it that, that we would hear about this group that God's wrath has come upon them at last? That as they stand now, they stand under the wrath of God. It's, it's specifically because they oppose the message of reconciliation. When we, come to, when we came to you, we came to you as to sinners, as sinners coming to sinners. We came to you with a message from God that said, come to me. I've made a way for you to come to me. This, this, is, this is not only anti-sin. This is pro-reconciliation. The whole point of the message of the gospel is not only to change behavior. The point, as, as we saw earlier, is personal. It's relational. It's a call into relationship with God. And when people come and say, no, you, you, you don't listen. Don't listen to this. Don't listen to this message about Jesus. And they stir other people up to oppose the message. There is a particularly severe kind of opposition from God against that opposition. This is what's in store for those who oppose your salvation, Paul says. They oppose all mankind, and so God's wrath has come upon them at last. They stand under it now, 
and it is as good as real if they don't receive the message of reconciliation. It's interesting that when Paul writes this to the Thessalonians, there is certainly a warning. And yet, this all happens within the context of Paul saying, Thessalonians, you stand in a place of confidence. We have good reason to be confident about you because of the way you've responded to the word of God. Not only have you not opposed it, but you have embraced it. You've continued to embrace it even when you suffer for it. And so we have good reason to say that this was not just our work in you. The word of God is at work in you who believe. We're confident about you. And we want you to be confident because God is at work in you. That's a pattern that also matches the earlier churches in Judea. Thessalonians, as you continue to trust in Jesus and that continues to shape you and it bears fruit outward in your life and more people hear the gospel and the word of God multiplies, that's exactly what happened to the churches in Judea when they were opposed as well. They continued to speak the word, Acts 5.31. And they loved each other well. That's Acts 5.32 through 37, where they shared all things in common. Even, even after they were opposed, they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ, Acts 5.42. And they cared well for the needy that were among them, the widows who were in need of daily food. Those, those accounts of them continuing to preach and continuing to care and continuing to love are woven in between accounts of opposition and trouble. And what happens as a result? Acts 6, 7, this kind of thing is repeated. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You heard the word, you received it as the word of God. Even when you were opposed, you held on to the word of God and the word of God has sounded forth from you as a result. And so we thank God for you. Father, you know that, that we in our lives face little oppositions, sometimes just little daily things. So, Father, I pray that your word would be at work in us, that our expectations for our future, that the place where we find our security and our hope would come not from our own abilities, not from fixing things around us, not even from our inalienable rights, but from your promises to us in Christ. I pray that we would know and remember and trust in what he has done and what he will do in such a way that your word would be at work in us today. We pray that you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.